Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Leviticus 23. And I'll do it after. So Leviticus 23 is where we're picking up. Uh, We have, um, as we go into Leviticus 23, we're getting into the last section of Leviticus, which feels like uh, kind of a benchmark for us. Uh, We got done with the final guidance to the priesthood. There's been guidance for the population, and now God's going to give guidance to the nation of Israel and how the nation should behave. So, um, But I wanted to just to summarize the priesthood pieces as we go into 23, because the first word of uh, this chapter is and. Um, so it's a continuation. So with the priesthood, they're not supposed to profane their work. They're supposed to stay holy. Uh, they should have no leprosy or hidden sins or visible sins in their life. Number two, there should be no discharge or what we would call running issues. Uh, So they're not people that have sin in their life. They're not people that are just complaining or there's kind of these these issues that they have all the time. And then three, the last instruction of the priest was they're not supposed to touch dead things. They're supposed to stay away from anything that has to do with death or dead things in this world. Um, So this this chapter then continues from that thought, um, and it's not an accident that it carries over. So... Uh, God wants his priests to be holy so that they can administer and ask the nation to do these feasts, uh, which are a series of holidays. And this is a people coming out of Egypt would have had Egyptian holidays. So if God doesn't want them to be pagan and do the Egyptian holidays, he has to give them new holidays. And these are the feasts that we have. And there are seven feasts total. And seven is, of course, the, the Hebrew number for completion or perfection. Um, that it's holy and good and everything is fulfilled. So there are seven priests that we're going to read through. I don't know if we'll get to all of them tonight because quite frankly, um, this has been one of my favorite chapters of Leviticus. This is the reward. When you read through this, there's so little here in the reading part of it, but when you start seeing how the Bible uses these feasts later on as an image of Jesus, it's really stunning. Um, and it's one of those kinds of things where you get done, and, and at least for me, my mind was kind of blown. So get a pen ready, get a notepad ready. Um, my wife is all holding them up um, because there's going to be a lot of references to, to where these go throughout the rest of the Bible and how God asks his people to remember this fellowship that they have. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Um, The feasts are clearly here for a reason, and they're all gathered together here, and this chapter focuses on when they should meet. And this first sentence starts that out. A feast is not what we think of as a feast. When we think of a feast, I think of, you all know, I think of barbecue. 
Um, and it is sitting down, having food at a table, everyone gathered. And the feasts are that in part, but the Hebrew word for, word for feast is an appointed time to meet. So the question when you have an appointment time to meet is who are you meeting with? And these feasts are meant for the people of Israel to meet together with each other. And they're also meant for them to meet with God, to have this time that they kind of honor and remember what God's done in their life. So God wants his people to set aside a meeting time and they are a holy convocation. Don't take them lightly, but the word, the, the feasts then are ways to remember what's going on, how, how God has treated them. And they're supposed to be things that they hold sacred. A holy convocation is a mikra. It's something that should be called out. And a mikra is generally speaking a reading or an assembly of people. So you have an appointment time to be calling something out together. And that's what a feast or a holy conv con convocation is. And proclamation is that you're going to announce that there's a time for these announcements. Right? So you're called together. You're going to read the holy words of the scriptures or what we're reading right now. You're going to rest together and you're going to sacrifice that time and take it away from your job or your productivity to give it to God. So there's certain days of the year they're not supposed to work. They're supposed to treat them as separate and different. So they start off with, with verse three. The and, and again, this isn't an accident. The most important of these convocations are Sabbaths every week. You take one day a week and you set them aside. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. And again, see the focus here is on this is a time to proclaim or to read what God has said. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So this is a household holiday and you get it every week. It's a quick reminder of the Sabbath. We've talked about this in prior chapters, um, but it coming first shows that it's the prominent piece. And I'll just kind of very quickly um, come back to this. There's six days to work. So man gets six days. Six is the number of man. Um, one, the number of God is given to God. So man doesn't get to work on that day. He, you take a break um, and you get six then plus one, which is seven, which is the number of completeness. Your life is complete if you take six days and you give one up to God and it creates a nice rhythm to your life, a nice week to week breakup um, and you get that peace. And the reminder that God is one uh, we hear right in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the word ikad. So the idea that you would take a break, six days for man, one day ikad for God, uh, that will make your life complete. It is a solemn, solemn rest, it says, uh, which is the word Shabbathon, a great rest or a solemn rest. And I love this. Another way to interpret that word is a breath. You get to take a breath every week. You're not supposed to work. It's pressing. Uh, you're also supposed to work for six days. And, and on both sides of it, you shouldn't, you shouldn't not work for six days. Um, and that is something where then you become slothful or you can get lazy. Um, and God isn't meant for that to happen. We're supposed to work for six days. So we may have six days of work, but five of them are given to our job. And maybe one of them is to do chores around the house or to do things for friends, um, to do kind of projects for the church. Uh, so to stay active and to stay kind of um, productive is, I, I think, a piece of the Jewish tradition of Sabbath, which is six days you shall work, one day you rest. Um, 
And we've talked about it before that I, Sabbath is one of those first steps we take as a believer that if you really want to make Sabbath sacred, it means that you have to tell other people that you're not going to do things on the Sabbath. Um, and it's a way to set a boundary around your life to say, look, on this day every week at this time, I'm committing that to God. So I'm going to be at worship on Sunday morning. I'm going to be doing church here. For those of us that are here, we're taking time on a Sunday night to say, I'm going to actually work my way through the Bible and I'm going to go to a Bible study where we're doing that. And to set that time aside is one of the ways you tell everyone else in your life who you are and who you've given your life to. And that's exactly what God wanted the Jewish people to do too. When people visited Israel and the whole nation shuts down, it honors God because people can see what's going on there. Um, it's one of the first steps when you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep Sabbath for the church and for the service to God and to be with God's people. Oftentimes that's one of the first things that you run into with your family. And either your family respects you for making that decision for yourself or sometimes that can bring conflict with a family because they want you to be here for this party or they want you to go to this thing and you have to negotiate that. Um, what's going to take precedent, family or my church activity? Um, and I know at least for Steph and I, that's been something where we've had to have that, have that conversation with people where it's like, you know, Sunday nights, this is what we do. Um, and most of our families, I think, respect us for setting that time aside and saying, okay, we get what you're doing. But it's a sacrifice. When we make a sacrifice of time and we give it to God, we take away the power of the world to say what we have to be doing all the time. So even when our jobs sometimes make us want to work on a Sunday and we say, no, I can't work on a Sunday because of my religious convictions, um, or sometimes we have to compromise on that and give it because we want to keep our job. Um, so those are tough things to negotiate, but it's one of the things that we shouldn't minimize because God calls it holy and it's a preeminent thing when we serve God. And I think it's because it's so easy to skip Sabbath that we do skip Sabbath. And it's so hard to keep it holy and to reserve it that to do that is one of the first steps in a Christian's life to say, I'm going to take that one day and give it to the service of, to what God wants for me on that day. Um, but again, we've already talked about it. It says in all your dwellings. So this is the kind of thing that people do as a family. Not only do you meet with God on Saturday or on, on Saturday, Sabbath days, um, but you're also meeting with God and you're, and you're meeting with your family and you're playing board games and you're doing things around the house. Um, and that's a time where families can be tight and as a unit, um, which is throughout the Bible, we've seen God see this family unit as very important. So God commands his people to keep the feasts every year. And we'll go through all of the feasts, or at least we're going to try to get through all the feasts. The first of the feast starts in verse four. It's Jewish Passover. It's on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Um, but on the 14th is Passover. But remember on day 10, uh, four days before that, you pick out your fluffy and you bring fluffy into your house to live with you for four days. So really the Passover season um, starts on the 10th of Nisan uh, when, they, when they bring the sheep into their house and he lives with them and they fall in love with their dear little fluffy sheep. Um, so the Jews are supposed to remember on Passover that Israel has been delivered from Egypt. Verse 4, there are the, there, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you proclaim at their appointed times on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And that's all we get here because we've already covered Passover back in Exodus 12. Um, so we're going to pay a little attention to timing here. What's important about verse 4 and verse 5 
is what day of what day of the month Passover is going to fall on. So why did God set the calendar time on this date? Why is the date so important? And if you skim through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see that with most of the feasts, what's really important in this chapter are the dates that they have the feasts on and when the, the feasts will occur. So in quick review and as a reminder, Passover is when they get the lamb. They sacrifice one lamb for the household. Uh, the lamb's blood is you know, covering the families or atoning for the family. They would wipe the blood on the doorframe in Egypt, and then the, the angel would pass over that house uh, and skip that house, wouldn't even come into the house to see if the people were worthy or not. Once it saw the blood of the lamb, it would go right over the house, and there was the sins weren't even looked at. Um, so that's Passover. Paul says there are understandings of the Old Testament that get revealed in Christ. So there's something we're supposed to see in Passover once Christ has come. And most, most Christians believe Passover has a lot to do, and these first four feasts have to do with Jesus' first coming, and they pair up with it, and I'll show you why. Um, but when Jesus comes, he dies. He does not have any sin in him. He's a spotless lamb. Uh, he is the first fruit of the harvest that's going to come, and then he founds the Holy Church at Pentecost. The Christian version of Passover, then, is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He came to live with us for a short time, his ministry lasted roughly three years, and then we killed him. Um, and because his blood covers the world, uh, those that follow or, or join Jesus' family don't have to worry about judgment. So at Passover, the Jewish tradition is they'd send their kids all over the house so there'd be a spring cleaning. This is where we get the term spring cleaning. And the spring cleaning would be to get all the leaven out of the house. And the, the wife or the, the, the head of the household would take little cracker crumbs of leaven, little breadcrumbs, and they would leave a set of breadcrumbs all over the house and they would hide them. And the kid's job was then to go find the leaven and get it out of their house. So, and this image gets used by Paul in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may make a new lump as you are unleavened for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So in the way that Jesus Christ is the lamb of the Passover, we still, as believers, still have this job to get the sin or get the leaven out of our life. So Jesus is crucified then on the actual day of Passover. He walks into Jerusalem singing on that triumphant entry on day 10, which is when you pick out your lamb and you bring the lamb into your household. And that's the same day that Jesus comes into the uh, to Jerusalem uh, and it's the day that the family should be identifying the lamb, Exodus 12.3. That lamb then will be sufficient for the whole family, Exodus 12.4, without defect, 12.5. And then you keep them in the house from Nisan 10 through 14, Exodus 12.6. And then you kill the lamb at approximately 3 p.m. in the afternoon so that you have time to prep it and get it ready. And then that lamb should be eaten over the next three days. John 19.14. And it was the preparation of Passover at about the sixth hour. Again, John makes a big point of when Passover happened and the times of day that things happened on because John was fascinated by the fact that Jesus matched it perfectly. Therefore, because it was preparation day, the day before Passover, when you get all the leaven out of your house, the bodies should not remain on the cross on Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day. And the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away and buried, completing the sacrifice. John 19, 42, 
So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. John thought it was a really big deal that Jesus was crucified um, and they had to get him off the cross because the next day was Passover. So that, that the Passover process or preparation day, the day before they start that feast, was the day that they could do things. They weren't supposed to work on Passover. So it was very important, and, they, and John made a note of it in his gospel. Jesus was killed on the same day that the lamb should be killed for Passover. So when they're killing Jesus on a cross, all over Israel, they're killing lambs for households, and God's killing a lamb for the whole world at the very same time. So remember, Jewish days start at dusk, so that killing, taking Jesus off the cross would have probably actually happened on a Thursday even though the Catholic tradition has Good Friday as the day, um, but Jesus would have been taken down on Thursday, the day before the Passover. His blood then gets shed for the whole family. Um, and interestingly, uh, well, I thought this was a cool side note, and I just ran across it. One of the traditions, and it's not biblical, you can't find it in the Old Testament, but the Jewish people would, over time, started hanging a little label around the lamb's neck. So when it was sacrificed, that meat had to come back to the family and they started having the priests do the butchering. So they would put a name of the family around the person's neck, a little tabard or a little marker to say what family the lamb would belong to. And that inscription uh, or that plaque actually gets applied to Jesus too. And John makes note of that saying, Jesus got a plaque attached to him. It's really interesting how this happens. John 19, verse 19 through 22. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on a cross. It was The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, three languages. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but he said, But he said, I am the King of the Jews. And the Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. So what's so offensive to the Jewish people? And if they're killing a guy on a cross, why do they care what plaque gets stuck on him? And that was something that Michael Norton looked at in his book, uh, The Feasts of Israel. And what, what's interesting here is if you take that inscription and look at it in the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, in the Hebrew, um, that would be written out, Yeshua Haznatri Vimelech Hahidium. And the first letter of each of those words would be Y-H- VH would have been right over the cross. For the Hebrew people and from Caesar, he's I think he's trying to insult them, um, but it pretty much puts the name Jehovah right over the top of Jesus's cross. So like the Passover lamb would have the family name put on the lamb, for Jesus, the family name of God gets put on him when he's, when he's crucified. So I don't know. I thought that was super cool. I kind of imagine the sign actually had the first letter of each word in capitals. So it would be, you know, it would look, it would be wildly offensive to the Hebrews. And John actually records it and kind of tracks that. But it, it, a side note, in, even in the traditions that God didn't ordain, he was still doing things to make all of this work. So you put the blood on the doorframe. Jesus' blood gets put on a cross. He sees, says he's the bread and we should eat him at the Passover last supper dinner, Luke 22, 19. Uh, and then we're supposed to rehearse this every year until it's fulfilled, Exodus 12, 14. And then in Luke 22, Jesus says, I've fulfilled it. This is our last one that we're going to do. And he said to them with a fervent desire, 
I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So if for those of you that got to come to Trevor's Seder dinner, you got to see a lot more symbolism around Passover. Uh, and there's lots there. But uh, Jesus essentially takes the cup of wrath on himself, and that's Passover dinner. And from a Christian perspective, we don't celebrate Passover because Jesus was the Passover, and it's completed, and we don't, and it's not going to be started up again until the kingdom is fulfilled. Let's get to the second feast. On the 15th day of the same month, so these holidays kind of go together like a holiday season, and this is all in the spring. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread before the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And again, the unleavened bread represents bread without any leaven or sinless bread or the flesh that has no sin in it. Leaven is forbidden in Leviticus 2, 7, 9, Numbers 6. Uh, why is leaven so forbidden? Because it's going to be used as an image of unseen corruption, sin that grows under the radar, hypocrisy that starts to come out. In Matthew 16, 6, leaven is associated with religiosity and skepticism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In, in Mark 8, 15, it's associated with worldliness and power, the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul relates leaven to legalism in Galatians 5, 7 through 9. And then he says, leaven has to do with all immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> so you clean it all out of your house. You clean house and you get leaven out of your life, it's a clean sweep. Uh, there is no need for it in the spring because you've got all the new fruits coming in. So you really don't need leaven in your bread to add that sugar to it or to add it. And your, har your bread, your flour should be running out from last harvest. Uh, so it's a time to go out and eat fresh things instead of uh, making bread from old flour. Verse 7, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. Again, a time to proclaim or read God's word. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So from Saturday to Saturday, they're going to have two days of rest on either side. And in between for one week, they eat no leavened bread. They have all crackers. Um, and they, they basically fast from, from tasty food and they go to the, the unleavened stuff. The convocation, that proclamation of the word, you can imagine that every year at the holiday season, this becomes a tradition in these families, just like Christmas is a tradition in the U.S., and we get all these warm, fuzzy feelings around the holiday. Well, when they hit the Passover and then this season of unleavened bread, there's just going to be this kind of thing that all goes together like a narrative or a story. Uh, it's a holiday season. The seven days makes it a perfect or complete set of days um, to have that time with the Lord and to have that those breaks, to take a week off. For the Christians, that unleavened bread is the sinless bread. The unleavened bread is the sinless flesh of Jesus Christ. And there's an emphasis here on no work that we saw in verse seven. And that emphasis on no work is there is nothing that we do when it comes to this imagery or this image of Jesus. Jesus was without corruption. And he had no help from humanity on doing that. There's no work being done by humanity. God does everything. We're saved. We're redeemed. We don't do anything to earn that or get that. We just rest and God gives it to us. So Jesus atones at Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he helps us get the sin out of our life. We're supposed to be working on it. And that's, there's a preparation day where the kids are going around trying to help get rid of it. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I read these verses because this is the language that they spoke in. And in Leviticus 23, we get the, the dictionary for that language. So when Paul is talking about Jesus and talking about spiritual life, he uses the feast to explain that. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus said, uh, or Jesus... Um, says to them, I tell you the truth. This is in John 6, verse 32. I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry, hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus dies but his bread has never got leaven put into it. So he's the bread of life. He's the sinless bread that the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread is celebrating. His body, uh, when he dies, um, in Jewish tradition, has to be in the grave for four days to be considered corrupted. His body's only in the grave for three days. So because, because the, you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer my Holy One to see corruption, Acts 2.27. Jesus then carries on the tradition of cleaning out the house on the very day of preparation. And we see him do it twice. So the first time, when it was almost time for Jewish Passover, John 2, verse 13. And almost time for Jewish Passover means the day before, the preparation day. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem into the temple courts, his house, and he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here. How dare you turn my house into a father's market? When he says, When you turn my house into a market, he's essentially saying this is his house and his father's house, and that he's cleaning it, and the day he does that on, and that's why John points it out at the beginning of the story, is on preparation day when he's supposed to be cleaning out all the leaven for the unleavened bread. Early in his ministry, he does that right up in the front. Notice that was John 2. But at the end of his ministry, right before he's crucified on a cross, he does the exact same thing all over again, and he does it again on the day of preparation. Listen to this in Matthew 21. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, and you're making it a den of robbers. Jesus cleans house on preparation day. So you got Passover. You got this unleavened bread. And then the third feast, verse 9 in our chapter, is the feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and you shall offer on that day when you were a sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish, 
as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephath and the fine flour mixed with oil and an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one fourth of a hen. And you shall, need, shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you've brought an offering to your God. It should be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. First, let's understand this piece. We see a lot more detail on this feast because really it's the first mention of it in the Bible, this feast of first fruits. Notice that it has a burnt offering in verse 12. It has a grain offering in verse 13. And that grain offering... Uh, seems to have a drink offering that goes with it at the end of verse 13. So there's this kind of bread and wine that gets brought together and sacrificed um, or given up to God. And then you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain till the same day. All of their food from the harvest in the spring, the, the very first bits of crops they get, it's all unkosher until they bring their first fruits to the Lord and to the temple. So whatever you're harvesting, you're going to take the first round of that harvest um, and you're going to bring it into the temple and you're going to give it up in hopes that God will provide a bountiful rest of your harvest. So first fruits would have been a tenth roughly of the harvest that would have come in. There's no particular day on this feast. Remember, Passover and unleavened bread had very particular days that they needed to start and end on. So first fruits can really be whenever the barley's ready. Uh, in this part of the world, the, the crop that would be coming in in late March uh, in the spring would be barley. It's the first crop that, that, that produces. So barley, when it's ready for harvest, actually tips over and bows its head. And that's kind of an interesting piece because we're asked then to take that crop that's going to bow to the sun, to the sky, and harvest it, bringing it into the temple, and then they're going to wave it before the Lord and give it as a wave offering or hold it up. It's a sweet aroma to the Lord, and we've seen that a lot in Leviticus. A sweet aroma means God loves to see this happen. He loves to see people give him his first, their first fruits. First fruits is tougher to do when you're not a farmer because you don't have a beginning and an end to your season. So tithe becomes part of what first fruits are, and people would especially if they had to travel to Jerusalem to do this, they would bring in a year's worth of tithe and offer it at this time, even if they weren't farmers. So a male without blemish is again noted here, and it would be at the, the beginning of their adult or productive time. And for a sheep, that would be year two. For an adult, it would be in the 30s, right? So right at the beginning of their adult coming of age productive time in Jewish tradition. And nobody gets to eat anything until they wait for that first harvest to come in. So there's this pause that has to happen between Passover and unleavened bread, and then you're kind of looking for when the barley's going to come in during that time. For Christians, the first fruits of the church, the very first fruit is Jesus. He's the first person to have not only been resurrected, but been given a new and perfected body. So Lazarus gets resurrected, but Lazarus dies in that body that he is resurrected in. Jesus is resurrected, but he does not die. And that body that he kind of comes up and hangs out with the disciples in is enduring as a body and it goes to heaven, uh, uncorrupted and unleavened. So the fruit of our harvest is on no particular day, but Jesus then is raised on a particular day. And Paul kind of says, well, Paul says it directly. Jesus is the first fruit and he even calls him the first fruit. And I'm going to read that to you. 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's not using metaphorical language there. He's helping his readers to understand that the feasts were an image of Jesus. And he's using Jewish vocabulary to make that very, very clear. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all of us die. So in Christ, we're all going to be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ is the first fruits. And when he, when he comes, those who belong to him shall come too. First in Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have preeminence. So Paul keeps using this image to explain to people that Jesus is just the first of people that'll be resurrected. And he's not the last that'll be resurrected. First Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. So he's going to be the first, but there's going to be a whole church of people that get resurrected with him. Verse 11, on the day after the Sabbath is when this should happen. So we don't have a day of the month. So on any given year, if Nisan 10 or the 10th of Nisan is when you pick out your sheep and on the 14th is when you have your dinner, then wherever the Sabbath lands on that particular year, um, you would have your first fruits at, on that piece. In other words, one out of every seven years or a week's worth of years, you're going to have first fruits land on a Sunday. And the next year it'll land on a Monday and the next year on a Tuesday, on and on and on. So it'll roughly be one out of every seven years. This helps us form a historical clock easily. So you can kind of tell what year within seven plus or minus, you can tell what year things would happen. So this gives us a clue in John 20 when it says the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The day Mary Magdalene finds the tomb empty is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the day after Sabbath. Well, that's interesting. So she finds the tomb empty on a Sunday. And Jesus would have then been risen from the dead on that actual day, which is the day after Sabbath. So the Passover lamb is taken into the house on the 10th of Nisan. That's the day Jesus enters Jerusalem. Preparation and Passover and the lambs are sacrificed on the 14th. That's the, that's the day Jesus died on. And then there's a feast of unleavened bread that starts on the 15th. And then Jesus is buried on that in, on the 15th. And in that particular year, the day after Sabbath or the first fruits would have been on a Sunday, the 17th of Nisan, which means Jesus was in the grave for three days. Meaning Good Friday is probably a good Thursday or something to that effect. And there's whole websites that talk about how all this works because Jewish calendars are different than ours. But essentially, the 17th of Nisan is the day Jesus would have raised from the dead. And that's an interesting day biblically. So again, you see all these connections. On the 17th of Nisan, we see that that's when Noah's Ark landed on land and there's a new beginning, Genesis 8.4. Israel leaves Egypt on the 14th of Nisan, which is what we're celebrating with these holidays, but they cross the Red Sea and land on the other side on the 17th of Nisan, where there's a new people and a new law that's going to be given to a new nation. Joshua 5, after 40 years, the manna stops coming on the, four, on the 17th of Nisan. They get a new promised land and God stops bringing manna. Esther says there's a decree that's going to kill all the Jews on the 13th of Nisan. 
Esther fasts for three days, the 14th, 15th, and 16th. And on the third day, uh, this is Esther 5.1, she goes in to talk to the king, willing to sacrifice her life for the Jewish people. And in the end, she doesn't have to. Everything goes well, and it's a happy ending. But the day she goes to talk to the king to save the Jews from extermination is on the 17th of Nisan. And the king saves the people on that day. The next major use of the 17th of Nisan, Jesus is raised from the dead. So there is not only a new beginning for Israel, there's a new people called the church, a new law, a new covenant, a promised land, the kingdom of heaven, and a new salvation that all comes together on the 17th of Nisan. So for my calendar geeks, this is an impressive day. And you can see where the disciples got pretty excited about how all this played out. These feasts actually mirrored the path and the ministry of Jesus and his first coming perfectly to the day. Um, and we even see you know, little pieces where Jesus would have cried, it is finished at right around three o'clock uh, in the afternoon, which is when the lamb should have been killed. So while the Jews are all in their houses doing this tradition, there's an epic global event happening right outside their town. And then we get to the fourth one, the Feast of Weeks. And this continues. So these four feasts go together. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks. Verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves. And I just, real quick, I love that God says you should count for yourself. Don't hire someone to count for you. You make a count. So I imagine, like we have, uh, you know, those little Christmas calendars where you open the door and eat the chocolate. What are those called? Advent calendars where you count for yourself. God wants his people to do their own counting. So he does like math teachers. I know it. God loves math people. Um, and he says, um, count for yourselves. Do it on your own. From the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So those seven weeks. Seven being a number of perfection. You're going to count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. The, in verse 16, when you see 50 days, the Hebrew for that is Pentecost, the count of 50. So the Feast of Weeks is what we call Pentecost, uh, and it's been called that because you're supposed to count to 50. <laughs> That's your job. It mirrors the seven times seven period that God ordained for the nation of Israel that every 49 years on year 50, there'd be jubilee. So you're going to do the same thing, only we're doing it in weeks. There's going to be seven weeks that you count out times seven, and, and you're going to and essentially there's going to be 50 days. And on the 50th day, when Jubilee, the debts are forgiven, at Pentecost, something's going to happen on that day. Count it out, plan it out, and you're going to do that. Here's what they do in their tradition to remember this day. Verse 17. You bring from all your dwellings two wave loaves, of two-tenths of an ephath. Pay attention to how many times the number two gets used. They shall be fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven. So different from Passover and unleavened bread, now we're going to fluff that bread up and put some leaven in it. They are the first fruits to the Lord and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. And they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with a grain offering and a drink offering, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So we got, same as Passover, there's a burnt offering for atonement and there's a grain and drink offering for fellowship or for peace. 
<laughs> and I lost my place. This is a sweet aroma to the Lord, verse 19. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. So you got three of the different types of offerings all happening on the same day. There's going to be a lot of food to eat for the peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with, two la- with the two lambs. So the priest is going to take that bread and hold it up into the air together. Both loaves are going to get held together in the air, and then there's a lamb for each of the loaves. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall proclaim on the same day that it's a holy convocation to you. Holy convocation. We're going to proclaim what God says about this. You shall do no customary work. You don't do anything here. God does everything. And it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So 50 days, it's the day after, so it always starts on a Sunday. And you're going to count 50 days in verse 16. And Christians then would then take that count because it always starts on a Sunday. And they always are going to have Pentecost on a Sunday. And Christians would have this kind of thing where they would want to be serving the Lord on a Sunday because it seems like that's an important day to God too. And it's the day of Pentecost. It's when God showed up. So at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the church, that becomes the day that Christians want to be studying in fellowship with other believers. They want to be doing worship music. And they start to call that church day, Sunday. Um, And it's the first day of the week. There's a new grain offering that gets offered here. So how is there a new grain offering and we're 50 days after the first fruits? That's because the first fruits are usually barley. If you go about 50 days in the, in the Mediterranean, you're hitting the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest is different than barley. Where the wheat bows down, the wheat or the barley bows down, wheat is the opposite. It gets stiff-necked and it holds itself stiff and it whitens. And then the harvester lops off the top and they shake out the wheat from the kernel. So after these weeks are counted off, then you basically have this time of farming and bounty comes along. Roughly speaking, there's a lot of work to do between first fruits and um, Pentecost. Um, Notice from the dwellings that there's two wave loaves. They get baked with leaven. So in the feast, they're raised up. These unleavened or these leavened loaves of bread are raised together, and there's a lamb for each one. The fine flour is a symbol of purity, and it's mixed with leaven, which is a symbol of impurity, but God makes it holy when they're held up. This is interesting. So the feasts in the same day that Moses is, this, this day of Pentecost is the same day chronologically that Moses gives Israel the law. So he comes down, he reads it. There's a covenant, Exodus 20, 18. Now all the people witness the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain, the smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood away far off from trembling to proclaiming it. Pentecost is the day the Jews are supposed to remember this is when we got the law. This is when God came down from the mountain through Moses and gave us the law. And Moses doesn't do the speaking in Exodus 20. God does it through these thunderings. And Jewish people traditionally look at the word thunderings as a plural. It wasn't one voice. It seemed to be a voice that in Jewish tradition came across in many different languages. Um, So they still, even after this amazing moment, they go off and they worship a golden calf 
and ultimately it results in 3,000 uh, Hebrews getting killed because they rebelled against God. They were weak. They were taken out. They weren't left in the nation because they didn't want to serve God. They wanted to serve other gods. Now for Christians, the Feast of Weeks takes on a whole different meaning. So it says from their dwellings, there's going to be two wave loaves baked with leaven. This easily gets interpreted in the, in the New Testament as representing two major groups of people that are going to be brought together. And people have leaven in them. They're not unleavened. Jesus is unleavened. People have sin. All people have sin. They're leavened bread, and that's the flesh of humans. So in, in Ephesians 4, verse 5, it says, As it's now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Humans don't do anything. There's no work on Pentecost. Everyone takes a break. And they proclaim and they make a holy convocation where they're going to gather together and they're going to announce what God's doing. And that's exactly what all the Christians, the Jews are doing on the first Pentecost um, of the Christian era, right? They're gathered together, they're reading the word together, and then all of a sudden something happens. Um, and it is the, the Pentecost, the count of 50, as noted in Acts 2, there's a rushing wind that blows through the Christians in Jerusalem. And a Holy Spirit ignites what's going to be this season of harvest for the church. Jesus uses the harvest language. We'll get into that. But here's Acts 2. Let's read about Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they counted 40 days or 50 days, they were all with one accord in one place. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do according to the feasts. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, a thundering, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues, thunderings. And as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's no work that the people are doing. God's doing everything here. And there's, the, there's this proclamation that happens, this announcement. And in the New Testament, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes with this sound of blowing wind. There's fire that descends. And the people start speaking in different languages. So Luke, who is a historian in the Roman tradition, comes to the same number of people and he rounds this up. He, and this is interesting because with Moses, when fire and thundering came down from the mountain, um, there were 3,000 people that got killed. But listen to this in Acts 2.41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's kind of cool. Moses reads about a new relationship with God. Peter gets up in the Holy Spirit and explains a new relationship with God. And it happens on the same day of the year, right? So the, for the first Pentecost, Israel sees signs, wonders in the presence of God, and God gives his law and 3,000 people die. The first Pentecost for the church, there's signs, wonders, the presence of God. God gives his Holy Spirit and 3,000 people get saved. It's almost like God's taking back the souls that he lost at the first Pentecost. So there's four months until the spring feasts, and then it's harvest time, and there's work to be done, and there's stuff that has to happen. And in the middle, they get this little instruction in verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, so this is during the four months between the first four feasts and the grouping of the next three feasts, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. 
I am the Lord your God. And we haven't seen I am the Lord your God until he was giving rules. So this is a rule. So there's room for other people to participate in the harvest that aren't Jewish people, right? So the strangers, the poor, people that aren't having ownership in Israel suddenly can partake in the harvest. And in Ephesians 2.5, Paul points this out. Even when we were dead in sins, we had leaven in us, he has quickened us together with Christ by grace we are saved, and he has raised us up together like the two loaves of bread and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show exceeding riches of grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. So how at the end can the sinful people be made to sit in heavenly places? There's no how to it. God does all the work. There's no work for humans to do. He's just going to bring people into that place. And this image of not reaping the corners of your field becomes part of this idea of other people participating in the harvest harvest, rather than just the Jewish people. The Gentiles are going to participate in it. Leviticus 19 is going to repeat this idea or has repeated this idea. We've already come to it. In this particular passage in chapter 23, it's about when God puts this in the chapter, why it's written in the middle there, that there's this season between Jesus' first coming and second coming where the Jews and Gentiles are going to harvest souls together. So there's a gap there where there's harvesting to do. Jesus calls it the harvest. I told you I'd come back to Jesus. And he says the main harvest, the end of the harvest, is the end of the world. So in Matthew 13, 39, the enemy, this is Jesus speaking, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Jesus commands his disciples then to get going on harvesting. Let us both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, that's when Jesus says to kind of do these things. So John 4, 35 don't say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. So Jesus uses this Pentecost language to explain to his disciples, don't say that you can just sit around while I'm gone. I'm going to return to you. Um, but while in that time when I'm gone and when I return to you, you're supposed to be out collecting the wheat. So Christ follow followers should have a lot of work to do after this Pentecost. I'm going to read one more New Testament passage on this. Matthew 9, 37 through 38. Then said Jesus to his disciples, The harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore, that the Lord of the har- pray therefore of the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. And I, for me at least, that's one of those ideas when you see Pentecost and just thinking of this is a, a celebration that the Jews are going to keep for a thousand for for hundreds of years and they're going to keep this holiday waiting for this harvest idea to come to to fruition and when jesus connects through his teachings that he's the 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 lord of the harvest this is obviously taking these symbols or these feasts and saying that they're fulfilled so for most christians passover unleavened bread first fruits and pentecost aren't feasts that we celebrate anymore because Jesus has fulfilled them all. The last three feasts take on a little different image, but we're already at 50 minutes for tonight. So I think I'm going to stop here because frankly, I don't want to rush through these feasts. They're really cool. I hope you think they're cool. Um, But there's three more feasts and they get associated with Jesus's second coming. And if they are associated with his second coming, they should have clues for us to know 
when Jesus is going to return, and we can be looking out for that. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for, for Leviticus, a book of worship that teaches us how you want us to come before you and how you want us to worship you. Lord, I love the fact that part of how you want us to, to relate to you is through the feasts and through these images, Lord, that we can celebrate and honor and come into proximity with you. Lord, I ask for your blessing in what we do and how we think. May we remember you. May we gather together and talk about you. And may we have a holy convocation, Lord, where we, we read and we speak out and we proclaim your word. That these are things that should not be forgotten. They should go through all generations, including ours. And we should be showing them to our children and teaching them and celebrating them with our friends and family. So, Lord, we just appreciate it. Lord, I appreciate that you are the Passover lamb and that the, the Jews faithfully kept that holiday until you returned. Um, so there would be this understanding of what you were going to do for them and what the sacrifice was and how it works. Um, Lord, you came down to us as humans and made it easy for us to understand. Uh, if only we read your word and we see what's there. Um, Lord, you didn't make this hard and difficult. Um, you, you made it as complex as any scholar could spend a lifetime on, but you also made it as easy and simple that a child can understand it. Lord, you've asked us to um, accept that you're our Passover lamb, that you are, have shed your blood for our sins and that we are covered with that. If only we call on your name, and we do, Lord. We ask for you to cover our sins because we are leavened bread. Um, and Lord, we have sin in our life. We have pride in our life. We have our, our own will and our own intention, Lord. And we ask that you help us to clean that out of our house. And to make it a celebration that we can get sin out of our life. And it's not a loss, it's a gain. Um, and like those kids running around the house finding it and getting uh, cheered for by the adults when they, when they get sin and clean it out of the house. Lord, help us to do that spiritually. Uh, and that for every time we get sin out of our life, we have people in our life that will cheer for us and celebrate with us when that happens, Lord. And help us to go a season, Lord, and know that we're looking for the first fruits. As you were the first fruit, we want to be, be part of that harvest too. Uh, Lord, we want our souls and our bodies to be made new and to be made holy uh, and to ascend into heaven with you and your kingdom. Uh, so, Lord, we know we want to be part of that harvest, Lord, as we clean the sin out of our life. Uh, there is no work for us to do. And I just love that idea, Lord, that in these holidays, there's, we are to rest because you do the work. Um, and Lord, that was so important um, that, that you told and commanded the, the, the Hebrews to keep that sacred and keep it holy uh, because you're the Lord, our God. Lord, we're interested in all of this because you are our Lord and you are our God. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the family and friends that we can celebrate and, and have a convocation on a Sunday evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.